Welcome to you tonight. Welcome to you. I'd like to invite you to, uh, to join me in blessing our time together, please. May the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Thank you. Let us pray. Beloved and holy God, one of your great gifts to us was John the 23rd, whom you chose as our Holy Father. As we honor him this evening, we honor you for the grace you gave him and for the life of marvelous loving service that he lived. We pray that inspired by his holiness, we too may give our talents and heart and love to the service of your people. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Just a little reminder, uh, this bulletin insert has a list of all kinds of interesting talks to honor Vatican II this year, and uh, if you can make those, you're most welcome to do so. This, this parish is really, you should give degrees in this parish, you know, they have you know, such excellent opportunities for continuing education here. This evening, we continue our celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council, looking at aspects of the Council and nuances of the Council. And at the heart of understanding Vatican II is understanding the Pope who conceived that Council. And more than his cognitive processes, his person, an extraordinary, extraordinary man. And my hope this evening as I introduce you to some details of John the 23rd's life that you might find in that reflection some things that strike chords within you that can help uh, encourage you and help you celebrate the great privilege you've had to live in this era of the Second Vatican Council and the great grace and gift that that's been for our church. Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, peasant at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life, was born poor, lived poor, and died poor as the Pope. He was the fourth of 14 children. He was born in Soto El Monte. Soto El Monte is a little village in northern Italy, in the Diocese of Bergamo. Soto means side or under. So the name of his village was Under the Mountain, at the side of the mountain. His father and uncle and their families lived together and they were sharecroppers. These were folks who lived literally really close to the earth from which they tried to scratch out a living. Uh, 
poor but joyful peasants. And his parents and his siblings as well, but also his uncle, Zaverio, who was unmarried, were huge influences on him. They gave him a sense of joie de vivre. They gave him a sense of gratitude to God. His faith was nurtured in that family um, in a way that marked him for life. When he was just a young boy, he went to the seminary at age 11. When he was just a young boy, he started keeping a journal uh, of his prayer thoughts and of his relationship to the Lord. And it was ultimately published as called the Journal of a Soul. Very, very amazingly grounded uh, person, John the 23rd. Giuseppe, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli. 1885 he was born, November 25th. As a young boy, as I said, he went to the seminary in Bergamo and um, showed some academic promise and was sent by his bishop to Rome to study theology. Uh, certainly, when he went to Rome to study, that was his very first trip. Uh, to Rome, his family would never have been able to afford to go there. In fact, when he was ordained, August 10th, uh, 1904, which is a big event, uh, his family was too poor to even make the train ride to Rome to be there for his ordination to the priesthood. He settled in to the seminary in Rome, and, and he really loved his studies. He, uh, he took to his studies, and he used to write in his journal that he looked forward to the lectures, and he looked forward to, uh, to his reading. After he was ordained, shortly after that, there was a new bishop appointed to Bergamo who became a person very influential in John's life. His name was Bishop Tedeschi. Bishop Tedeschi was a very forward-looking uh, pastoral bishop who took uh, Father Roncalli under his wing, made him his secretary, which meant that he spent a lot of time with the bishop, you know, going for confirmation or going to visit parishes. Uh, he, was, he was with his bishop a lot and, had, and records a number of events when they had conversations that really touched him because Bishop Tedeschi was a, a very bright man who encouraged John in his creative thinking. He also assigned him to teach in the seminary in Bergamo. He taught history. Uh, and as I mentioned last night, he got in a little bit of suspicious trouble because he chose as a textbook a book that was on the index of forbidden books uh, because the author of it was suspected of modernism. Uh, <laughs> John didn't seem to much care. He also taught patristics, you know, the fathers of the church, um, at the seminary. When the First World War broke out, um, Father Ron Colley was drafted into the service as a medic, as a stretcher bearer. 
And he also, because he was a priest, he also ministered to uh, the soldiers in, uh, uh, in, in the war. Uh, he said one time when a, a group of Italian officers came to visit him in the uh, Vatican many years later when he was the Pope, he said to them, I wasn't a bad sergeant. He made it very clear. He wasn't an officer, but he wasn't a bad sergeant. After the war, he returned to his diocese of Bergamo and was made a spiritual director in the seminary and also a professor, um, which suggests that maybe the worry about his being a modernist wasn't uh, alive anymore. He wouldn't have been made the spiritual director there. But he began, during that period in his life, he began his research on St. Charles Borromeo, who was a lifelong huge interest to him. Charles Borromeo, who was one of the Medicis, you've heard of the Medicis out of Firenze, Florence. Charles Borromeo was the uh, Archbishop of Milano and among the most important uh, bishops at the Council of Trent, which was called to reform the seminaries. And uh, Father Roncalli began his research on Borromeo at that time and started to write the history of Charles Borromeo. Ultimately, it ended up to be five volumes, and uh, they were considered the definitive work on Charles Borromeo which is interesting for a lot of reasons because throughout his career, as we'll see as we open it up, he was considered to be an intellectual lightweight, which was a, a, a huge mistake to underestimate this jolly, uh, fat uh, priest from northern Italy who wrote in his journal in the seminary that he liked food too much. Uh, it was, he was a for real uh, intellectual and produced high quality research. And do you know when he finished the fifth volume on Charles Borromeo? 1958, the year he was elected Pope. I mean, this was, he committed to that all the way through his life. He, you know, did a lot of other stuff, but he stayed with that research which began at that time. He would have been very happy, as he said many, many times, uh, being in his home diocese of Bergamo and teaching in the seminary and helping out in the parishes, you know, being with the people, which was his great love. But in 1921, he was called to service in Rome and specifically at the propagation of the faith, which is the uh, office in the in the church for the missions. And apparently he was pretty darn good at it because the very first year he doubled the income to serve the missions. My, my, my research suggested to me, you know, the old axiom about the best salesmen and saleswomen are customers. You know what I mean? Like they're good customers. You know, if you really like new stuff, 
It's easier for you to sell new stuff to somebody else. Well, it was like he, he had such a love and respect for the missions that he communicated that to people and people responded uh, to be able to help. And he did that for uh, five, four years. Uh, three years into his stay in Rome, he was also uh, appointed as a, a lecturer at the Lateran University, uh, uh, a teacher of history. Nobody that I researched could really adequately explain how in 1925, remember in 21 he went to Rome, in 1925, Father Roncalli was named an archbishop. Nobody can figure that out. Uh, the best suggestion that I read was this, that you know, after the First World War in Italy, there was a, uh, a great political ferment taking place. Remember, Italy is a very new invention. You know, it was a collection of city-states for centuries. Um, there was great political foment taking place there, and there was one particular party that was socialist in nature. And John was very taken with it. Angelo Roncalli was taken with it. And the guess is that he was named a apostolic nuncio to Bulgaria to get him out of Italy. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's a school, there's a diplomatic school at the Vatican um, to train diplomats for the Vatican, for the church, you know, like the apostolic nuncio to the United States who, you know, lives in Washington and is the, is the Pope's contact with the bishops and the Church of America. That's true of all the major countries in the world. And there's a, there's a graduate school that trains diplomats for that service to the church. No one can demonstrate that uh, Archbishop Roncalli ever stepped foot in the building once. I mean, he was made a diplomat without any training whatsoever and sent to Bulgaria. You know why that was really important, that he was sent to Bulgaria in terms of us, what happened with us, is that in Bulgaria, he made, he made uh, his first uh, prolonged study and exposure to the Eastern Fathers of the Church and to uh, the Eastern Catholicism. And what that experience did for him over, the, over a period of the nine years or so that he was in Bulgaria was, as he put it, it liberated him from Roman theology. Those of you who were here last night, remember we talked about the Roman method of theology with propositions that by and large didn't explore beyond that which was already taught by the church? It was, theology wasn't seen to be a discipline by which you did innovative thinking and the, the new ways of construing the truth. Well, he was liberated from what he had been educated in, Roman theology, by his exposure to the Eastern churches and to the Eastern fathers of the church in his service in Bulgaria. 
It's going to have a huge impact on his great insistence. Remember, he called an ecumenical council. He, he was reaching out to all kinds of Christian churches. He didn't know anything about uh, Protestantism. That came later. That came when he was in France. He was exposed to some Anglican friends and who taught him some stuff. And it also happened in Greece, but he really, his major exposure was to the Eastern churches to which he had a great affection. Um, in Bulgaria, he was deeply loved by the people. Uh, he developed, I, I think it was something that he'd always done, but he continued it as an apostolic delegate in Bulgaria, which uh, drove Pope Pius twelfth nuts. Uh, he would go walk in the streets and go into bookstores and uh, just talk to people. And he, he did that in every posting that he ever had, including as Pope. He went to the, he went, when he was made Pope, he went to Regina Celi, which is the jail in Rome, in the city of Rome, to visit the prisoners. And he told this one prisoner, he says, you're a prisoner in Regina Celi, I'm a prisoner in the Vatican, you know. <laughs> the Pope thought it was unseemly that he would go and visit bookstores and just talk to people on the streets. Well, the upshot of that was everybody knew their nuncio, and they really, really loved this man. Um, Peter Hebblewaith, who, who is the main biographer, there are a world of biographies on John, but uh, that's, that's the, the gravitas biography. Uh, Peter Hebblewaith uh, published his farewell sermon in the cathedral in uh, Bulgaria where he would uh, serve. And it is very moving to this day when you read it. You know, it's like a, it's, it's a beautiful testimony. He didn't want to leave. He never wanted to leave anywhere he was. But he didn't want to leave Bulgaria. And in his homily to the people, he told them, he said, because um, he was being sent to Istanbul. And he was going to be the apostolic delegate of, to Turkey and Greece, both. He said, if any of you ever come to Istanbul, he said, come to the nuncio's house and you will see on the second floor <clears throat> in a window, you will see a candle burning. That's a candle for all my Bulgarian brothers and sisters. And if you come and knock on my door, you will find the arms of a brother welcoming you. Christian or Muslim, or Jew, whoever you are. It was like, you know, it was like, you, you get a feel. Because to really understand what happened at Vatican II, and you see the footprints of John um, in, that, in that council, even though he died after the first session, you really, you really should know him as a person. It was his incredible warmth and love of people uh, without distinction that really characterized this man. In fact, when he was in Bulgaria, uh, when he was, uh, uh, this is during the Second World War, he was on retreat. And in his journal, listen to what he said. This is, in, this is in the 30s. Listen to what he said. He wrote about the church, not as an institution, 
but, quote, as the living people of God. Already, in the 30s, 30 years before he called the council, he started to talk about the church as the living people of God. That had never been done. That had never been done. It was always referred to as an institution. But it really foreshadowed the incredible sea change, the seismic shift in ecclesiology that is refracted in Lumen Gentium, the great constitution on the church. Because that's where it described the church as the whole people of God. The whole people of God, not just a hierarchy. He also became an, uh, an expert on, uh, on the uh, origins of Christianity. When he was sent to Istanbul, that was a particularly uh, difficult time, middle of the war. And by the way, he expected the war to end in 1940. And so did Berlin's man in Istanbul, the, uh, the consul from Berlin, the Nazi government. His name was Franz von Papen. Franz von Papen was a Catholic. And uh, he came to uh, Archbishop Ron Colley and um, kind of blew smoke at him, but uh, they both were under the illusion that, that the war wouldn't last very long. But also von Papen was telling Archbishop Ron Colley that um, in Hitler's vision after the war, the church would have a wonderfully important place. Ron Colley was on record as being very skeptical about that. Remember, Italy was on the side of Germany, but uh, very skeptical about that business. But what happened in <clears throat> Istanbul was um, was really significant on a number of on a number of um, levels. Um, one more hint. I gave you one about the ecclesiology. Let me give you a hint about how he saw the papacy even then uh, at that time. He wrote about the, about the good people of God, you know, praying for the intention of the Holy Father. And he thought that was a really important thing. And then he said this, because the Pope is a sign of union in the church and he represents, listen to this, an invitation to order gentleness, and reconciliation. You know, the popes throughout the First and Second World Wars weren't known for those things. They were political folks, very much involved in behind-the-scenes uh, stuff. Already, uh, Archbishop Roncalli is telegraphing his view of the papacy, which is about service not about power and authority. It was about service. When he was in Istanbul, he worked feverishly for the cause of prisoners of war. He worked, um, he worked in trying to negotiate with the Russians for a trading of prisoners. And what he found was he was singularly unsuccessful. And the reason he gave for being unsuccessful was that the Russians didn't care about their prisoners of war. 
He said they viewed them all as traitors and would not engage in any kind of negotiations for them. Cold, huh? Very cold. He also, <clears throat> he also persuaded the Vatican. You know, it's usually going the other way. You know, money's going to the Vatican for work. You know, well, uh, Archbishop Roncalli got money out of the Vatican <laughs> to purchase through Switzerland food and clothing for the starving Greek people. He went out of his way to uh, provide for these poor Greek people who were in serious, uh, serious trouble. But the Istanbul and then later um, uh, in Greece time was really marked by a passion that John had. And this is, this is, I find, just absolutely extraordinary. Archbishop Roncalli was responsible for saving huge numbers of Jewish people. I found in my research at least 10 significant interventions that he did to save Jewish people who were being systematically exterminated by the Nazi regime. Listen to these, listen to these people, then I want to tell you a little story. Slovakian Jews, John saved. Bulgarian Jews, who were very close to his heart. Romanian Jews. Italian Jews from Transnistria. Hungarian. He sent baptismal certificates to the nuncio in Hungary to uh, be able to get the Jews safe passage. He also intervened to liberate Jews from two concentration camps, Starogradinska and Sered. I believe those were in Poland. I'm not positive of that. This is amazing. But one of the things that seemed to be an extraordinary thing was this. Remember I mentioned to you Franz von Papen? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm having a hard time, as you can tell. And uh, this voice is for you tonight. And what happens to it afterwards, it's on its own. You know? <laughs> the guys where I teach will like that a lot. <laughs> to go down to Scottsdale more, you know. This Franz von Papen and Angelo Roncalli liberated 24,000 Jews because Istanbul was one of the few neutral sites in the war and Jews who were trying to make their way to Jerusalem uh, were looking for self, a safe passage and John provided them uh, visas of passage that would get them through Nazi checkpoints. They weren't baptismal certificates. He did the baptismal certificates for the Hungarian Jews. But 24,000, you know, I mean, that's, that's before mimeographs, remember? <laughs> I mean, that's extraordinary. And von Papen cooperated with him on that, the Nazi consul there in Istanbul. You want to hear an interesting piece? Well, you'll be the judge if it's interesting. I sure think it is. Um, 
von Papen was recalled to Berlin in 1944, right before the end. And uh, at the train station, Archbishop Ron Colley went down to meet him at the train station. And they walked on the train platform up and down. And um, von Papen knelt down and asked him for his blessing. And convinced that he would never see him again because he was certain the Allies would hang him. And just before he boarded the train, Archbishop Roncalli gave him a letter. And von Papen said that letter could not have been written more lovingly by a brother. But listen to this. Archbishop Roncalli, at the Nuremberg trials, testified on behalf of von Papen for helping him to liberate 24,000 Jews and to save their lives. And it's quite clear that Archbishop Ron Colley's testimony saved von Papen's life. Here's an irony of ironies. In the 1960s, after John's death, when they opened up his cause for sainthood, the one who's in charge of that is called a postulator. Von Papen made his way to Rome and testified to the postulator about his experience with John in the saving of 24,000 Jews. Isn't that something? This is an Italian archbishop and this is a Nazi proconsul in Istanbul. Amazing, huh? How grace works and goes beyond uh, Boundaries and nationalities. It's just, you know, like, I suppose it's easy in the, in the rear view mirror of history to look at it with blacks and whites, but it clearly wasn't black and white. I'll pass that on to you. Uh, <clears throat> in the same year, 1944, in December, Archbishop Ron Colley was appointed to leave Istanbul and report to Paris as the apostolic uh, nuncio to Paris. It's the most prestigious diplomatic posting and through history, as you remember, France was always referred to as the eldest daughter of the church. So the Vatican's representative to Paris was the most prestigious diplomatic post. And he was appointed in December. Remember, this isn't, you know, this isn't the day of jets. Uh, and Ron Colley had to make his way from Istanbul to Rome and from Rome to Paris. And the job of the Vatican Nuncio in Paris on the first day of the year, the new year, is to give um, a speech of blessings and greetings to the president of France. Well, Ron Colley is, you know, this is, this is de Gaulle, and it's right after the war. Uh, you know, all kinds of delicacies, and I'll say a few things about that in just a moment, in the situations of the, uh, France at that time. Um, 
De Gaulle had been very anxious to boot Archbishop Valeri out of Paris because he had been the apostolic delegate during the Vichy government. He wanted him out of France. Uh, but Valeri, very graciously to Archbishop Roncalli, wrote a talk for him. Wrote a talk for him. And he was always grateful to him for that. I think he made him a cardinal when he became pope. <laughs> but Valeri wrote that talk for him. Uh, and John was, you know, I was just distracted. I had a, had a dear friend in a Marist mission, a Marist sister in uh, uh, West Virginia, Wheeling, West Virginia, who did incredible work for the poor there. I mean, astounding stuff. You know, opened up a clinics of all kinds and fed 500 and some people a day uh, for years. Just incredible work that she did. And the local Jesuit university in Wheeling wanted to confer on her an honorary doctoral degree. And uh, she was telling me this on the phone. She says, I'm not going to do it. So what do you mean you're not going to do it? She says, I'm not going to do it. She says, I have to give a speech. I'm not giving a speech. You know, she'd rather have dental work than give a speech. <laughs> she said, I'm not going to do it. I said, Connie, you got to do it. You know, they're honoring the poor of Wheeling through your work. They're honoring all your volunteers by giving you this doctoral degree. And I said, I'll write the darn talk for you. And she said, okay, you write the talk, I'll do it. <laughs> so I did. You know what was funny? Like later that year, my, both my brothers and their wives stopped by to visit Connie. She's a friend of our family. And it was the evening meal. If you're around with Connie, you're going to go to work for the poor. <laughs> so she assigned them all, you know, a tray to serve food to the poor that night. Now, one of my brothers was teasing her. He's an internist. And she, he said to her, she put him on the zucchini tray. And he says, he says, hey, I'm a doctor. I shouldn't be doing zucchini. And she said, I'm a doctor, too. Do, do, do zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Valeri wrote this talk for Archbishop Ron Colley. But Ron Colley was not the Vatican's first choice. It was an archbishop in Argentina that they wanted to send to Paris. So he was a skilled, trained, and uh, a deeply experienced diplomat at a very sensitive time. But his health wasn't good, so he turned it down. Listen to what John said. I love this line. He had no sense of pride or anything like that. John said this, knowing that he wasn't from the top drawer of diplomatic service. <laughs> He'd never been trained. He said, when horses are lacking, donkeys trot along. <laughs> Isn't that a great line? When horses are lacking, donkeys trot along. There was an occasion uh, in the cathedral there subsequently the, in uh, Paris when uh, Archbishop Roncalli was uh, preaching. And he had a bad microphone, only he didn't have Kelly to bail him out. And uh, it was crackling and not making much sense and so forth. So he just abandoned the microphone, went down into the body of the church and said to the people, my dear people, you have not understood anything your nuncio had to say. It's all right. It wasn't very interesting. 
and my French is not very good because my peasant mother, my poor peasant mother, didn't make me learn it early enough. It was great. It was just like, don't worry about it. You know, it was just it was wonderful. The big, the big and contentious issue taking place that he had to deal with was uh, General de Gaulle's absolute insistence and anger at the Vatican for 25 bishops that had uh, worked with the Vichy government. And he wanted them removed. He wanted them out of there. You know, it, it was delicate on a couple grounds. Number one, you know, the Vatican doesn't send diplomats to a government. They send them to a country, you know, whether it's the Vichy government or whoever it is. You know, so they didn't, they hadn't committed any crime. And secondly, key question, who appoints bishops? The Gaul or the Pope? You know, so it was, but it was also uh, very, very delicate because the people were also angry because those bishops had been silent during the Second World War and in the oppression of the French people. John, Angelo Roncalli, worked behind the scenes and he, he uh, massaged uh, de Gaulle's ego and uh, very quietly said, let me handle that. You know? and, and in the end, what he did was make it possible for 18 of those bishops to stay. Only seven were removed. That's an amazing feat of diplomacy, especially from an untrained diplomat. And you know, you know how pastorally sensitive and kind Angelo Roncalli was? Do you know what he did? He took one of those seven bishops that had to be removed, happened to be an auxiliary bishop in Paris, and asked him to be his personal confessor. What a humble, humble man this guy was. was amazing. He also... He also was present in France when that huge purge came. Remember I said last night, those of you who were here, Humani Generis came out in 1950 condemning modernism. And a whole passel of great, remarkable French theologians were forbidden to teach theology and silenced. Uh, de Lubac, Danielou, uh, Yves-Marie Congar, Chenu, Marie Dominique Chenu, silenced. Uh, Archbishop Roncalli was pastorally present to those folks. He stayed out of it because they were all religious and they had superiors that they had to deal with. But uh, he certainly made himself clear later when he became the Pope on his opening talk to the council when he said the deposit of faith is one thing. How it's packaged is another. And all those folks I mentioned to you became hugely influential in John's council. Amazing. <clears throat> so his years in France were really wonderful years. He loved France. He loved being there, even though Pope Pius XII wasn't happy with his uh, uh, going to bookshops uh, and walking in the streets. Uh, uh, Pius XII was a brilliant man in many ways. He was a scholar. In fact, he was a professor of John's in the seminary in Rome. He was a professor of canon law. But he also was a very astute um, 
politician. And I don't those of you who were around in that time, remember the the allergy to communism that there was? I mean everybody was allergic to communism. McCarthy, you know that well, Pius the twelfth suspected that France was soft on communism. And that also tainted his view of uh, Archbishop Ron Colley. You know, he appointed him there. He appointed him. But it was like uh, Isaiah describes the lion and the lamb lie down together, but the lamb doesn't get much sleep. <laughs> you know, he's, he's looking at Ron Colley with both eyes, you know, to, you know, to be sure, clear of what he's doing. Um, which also makes it really, this is a very interesting man. And he himself said, if you want to understand me, look at my Episcopal motto. I don't know if you know that, but every bishop has an Episcopal motto. Uh, and uh, John's was called Obediencia et Pax, Obedience and Peace. He said, if you want to understand me, look at my motto. That's what I'm about. He's a faithful son of the church, and he's all about peace. And um, because it was really almost oxymoronic that he was such a faithful representative of the Vatican, and yet was such an incredibly pastoral and uh, gentle and wise uh, presences at the same time. And to become the pope he became, and to... Uh, kickstart that great council is just an absolutely extraordinary thing. <laughs> By the way, when I was a very young priest, I, was, I said mass every morning in a convent of sisters and then taught in a high school right next door. And one of the sisters who became Dr. Elaine Park, who's been to St. Patrick's to speak, she's a great uh, scripture scholar, first female graduate of the Biblicum in Rome. She was a young nun at the time. And one morning after Mass, she said to me, Hey, Ray, if you ever become a bishop, I have a motto for you. I said, uh, Don't bother putting it anywhere where we'll need it. You know? <laughs> and she says, No, you've got to listen to the motto. It comes right out of today's gospel. And you know what she told me? She says, This is in Luke's gospel. Where the carcass is, there the vultures gather. <laughs> That'd be a great motto. John uh, had to leave Paris in 1953. He didn't want to go. But the reason he had to leave is because Pius XII was going to make him a cardinal. And nuncios are never cardinals. They're always archbishops. Who knew? Who cares? <laughs> but he had to leave France because he was going to be made a cardinal. And he was sad on a couple of grounds for that. A, but he, as I said before, he loved everywhere he'd ever been. And he really loved the people of France. And they were coming back after the war. You know, and he was very much a part of that and uh, had, had been uh, a major means of, uh, of stabilizing so many segments of that population. 
But the second reason why he was sad was being appointed a cardinal meant to him that he was going to be sent to the Curia, you know, to be a, a paper pusher. I don't, I didn't mean that derogatorily. I mean to be a head of a department in Rome, but it was means you're going to be a bureaucrat. And that's the last thing he really wanted to do. But, you know, he, obediencia at pox. That's what the Pope's going to ask him to do. That's what he's going to do. Fortunately for uh, soon-to-be uh, Cardinal Roncalli, the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice died before he left Paris. He didn't, he didn't even stop in Rome. He, uh, he was sent to Venice as the Patriarch. By the way, just a little historical fact here. Because France is the eldest daughter of the church kind of thing, there's an, an old tradition there that de Gaulle, because he loved Roncalli, exercised, and that was the red hat that's given to a cardinal. Instead of being given by the pope, de Gaulle gave it to him. The president of France exercised that right and bestowed the red hat on him. I'm sure it just really delighted Pius XII to send a red hat to de Gaulle. It's great stuff, you know. I don't, do you remember De Gaulle? He was like a bull in a china shop. I remember being a. I remember being in uh, Canada. I was studying at a at a university that's bilingual, French and English. Well, Quebec, and you know, there's a long, long history of contentiousness there. De Gaulle comes and says, "Vive la libre Quebec." Lovely. He's a guest of the Canadian government, and he's saying, <laughs> "Long live free Quebec." Anyway, so what I'm just saying to you is that he didn't go to diplomatic school either. You know? <laughs> okay. You know, when uh, Cardinal Roncalli was made a cardinal, this is this is his humility. You know what he said to his aides? He said. Um, don't be over-impressed, he said. It's an honor. It's not a sacrament. <laughs> I love that. I never lost sight of it. In fact, Hebblewaith, the great English writer, God rest him, made this observation about uh, Pope John the 23rd. He said, you know, like, uh, he used to read from the Imitation of Christ every day, Thomas a. Kempis. It's an ancient spiritual book. Um, and he, uh, John, uh, there were four things in Thomas Akempis that would really help you understand this man. Number one, to choose always to have less rather than more. That's absolutely the case with John. I, I, don't, I don't know if I mentioned this last night or not, but let me just tell you this now. He was always poor because he was sending whatever income he had, he sent it to... Uh, Soto il Monte to his family, who were really poor. Uh, uh, when he was a, a teacher in the university in Rome and working in propagation of the faith, he met a young American priest who was working in the Vatican, whose name was Father Francis Spellman, who became the Cardinal Archbishop of New York and a consummate politician. Right from those days, Father Spellman used to send mass stipends to Father Roncalli. And he kept it up, you know, like when he was in Bulgaria and when he was in Istanbul and when he was in France. And, and 
Cardinal Roncalli would send that money to his family. When he died as Pope, when he died and his, whatever the Italian court equivalent is to probate, when his will was discharged, his family members received uh, about $10 each. Isn't that something? This, that's the way he lived. Choose always to have less rather than more. Secondly, seek always the lowest place. Thirdly, seek always the will of God. And fourth, such a man enters the borders of rest and peace. If you live like that, you'll be in peace. That's the way John lived his life. Well, he was sent to Venice in uh, 1953, in January of 1953. Uh, he was the patriarch of Venice. That's not a word that's often used in our Western church, is it? Patriarch. I mean, you usually associate that with the Eastern Church, right, the Greeks and so forth. But there actually are five patriarchies in the Latin Church, in the Western Church. Um, Venice, the Archbishop of Venice is a patriarch. It's a very prestigious uh, acknowledgement of leadership. The Archbishop of Jerusalem is a patriarch. Of Lisbon, Portugal, of the East Indies, and of um, Venice and Rome, of course. The Pope is the patriarch of Rome. No, nobody ever deals with... You know, if you ever look at the number of titles the Bishop of Rome has, there are a lot of them. Most important of which is Bishop of Rome. Uh, but he's the patriarch also. Anyway, John went to Venice and was delighted to go to Venice because he went as a pastor. That's what he wanted to do. It's what he did all his life. He wanted to be a pastor. That's what he wanted to do. So uh, when he went to Venice, by the way, which is back up in the north, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not that far from Bergamo. It's not that far from where he grew up. That, that's his territory. He was absolutely delighted. And one of the reasons he was delighted was that it wasn't that far from Milano, from Milan, Remember his research on Charles Borromeo? Um, the librarian and archivist of uh, the Milan Cathedral, which contains all of Borromeo's works, opened it up to Roncalli, and he continued, resumed, and continued his research on Charles Borromeo. In fact, when he became pope, he went through the coronation ceremony, he's the last one that did that, on the feast of Charles Borromeo. It was very precious to say he was happy, happy, happy to go to Venice. Loved it and uh, loved the pomp. Uh, Cardinal Roncalli loved ceremonies. He loved that. And in Venice, you know, uh, there are certain times, and especially when you come to uh, St. Mark's Square for the first time, all, all the gondoliers, you know, accompany the patriarch uh, through the canals of Venice. It's a huge, big ceremony, you know, and... People are lined up on the on the uh, the docks and welcoming. Their, he loved that, and he gave wonderful. And he had plans. He had plans for being the bishop of Venice. Uh, he wanted to visit every single parish in the diocese, and a real visit, a real pastoral visit. He also uh, called a synod for 
uh, the Diocese of Venice, you know, to, to see what the people needed and to see what the Church of Venice needed. He loved being in Venice. And his opening address to people in Venice is as gentle and pastoral and gorgeous as his farewell address in Bulgaria was. He just, he just exuded his love for the people and his willingness to, to spend himself for them and uh, humility about uh, being unworthy to be their pastor just, and sincere as a heart attack. He just was a very warm pastoral human being and they loved him in return. You know, one of the ironies, it's, it's just one of those ironies of life. Uh, when he went to Venice, two of his beloved sisters, remember he was fourth of 14 kids, two of his beloved sisters who for years had accompanied him and been his housekeeper, you know, in Istanbul and uh, Bulgaria, I don't know that they, I don't think they came to, to uh, Paris, but, and, and Chilla, Latin for handmaid, his sister Ancilla and his sister Maria uh, both were dying of stomach cancer when he became the patriarch of Venice. So that was a, a great sadness for him. And the great irony, of course, is uh, he himself died of stomach cancer too in the future. Loved Venice, loved being there. When Pius XII, who had had a long reign as Pope, became gravely ill, um, Cardinal Roncalli wrote to his family that he dreaded a conclave, you know, the, when they closed the cardinals in to elect a Pope, which would last a month because he would have to interrupt his pastoral plan uh, for the visiting of the parishes and the synod. And he really didn't want to do that. Uh, but when he left Venice to go to Rome for the conclave, he had a return train ticket to Venice in his back pocket. And he fully intended to come back to Venice at the end of the conclave. By the way, in Venice, when he arrived, um, there was a young priest of the diocese there named um, Loris Capovia. And um, Father Capovia uh, became the secretary to Cardinal Roncalli and a confidant and went with him eventually to Rome and lived with him in the Vatican. They served each other's mass each morning. Those are the days before con celebration. Imagine having a pope serve your mass. You know, he's a very humble guy. And Capovia was a dear friend and uh, servant, really, as a, as a priest. I think he eventually became a bishop uh, to, to uh, Cardinal Roncalli. And he's the source of a lot of stuff, because Hebblewaith, when he wrote this exhaustive bibliography, or biography of John, uh, was able to interview Capovia. So he was in on all the inside stuff from Venice on of what the Pope was up to. Very interesting guy. God bless him. At the conclave, you know, uh, the bishops brought, uh, Arch Arch Cardinal Roncalli brought Capovia with them. Uh, others brought theologian with them. They couldn't be part of the conclave itself, but they were part of the preliminary when the cardinals get to know each other and see what's going on. 
have a glass of wine, see what they think. You know, they're, they're scattered all over the place. They don't really know each other always that well. Um, a French abbot who accompanied the Cardinal of Lille, Cardinal Leinert, who was very important in Vatican II, said this, quote, listen to this, because this is consistent with what people thought. Even I, as a seminarian, knew this. When, you know, a little schlepping along in a seminary in Seattle, even I knew this. Quote, what we need is an old man, a transitional pope. He won't introduce any great innovations, innovations, and he will give us time to pause and reorganize. In that way, the real choices that cannot be made now can be postponed. We just want somebody to keep the chair warm. There were only 51 cardinals uh, at the time of this conclave. There are like, I don't know, 120 or something now. But uh, the Pius XII hadn't appointed many cardinals for a number of years. There were only 51 of them. And do you know that more than half of them were older than Cardinal Roncalli? By the way, um, the wisdom, consistent wisdom, uh, on those who are experts at this time was this. Giovanni Battista Montini, who was the Archbishop of Milano at the time, was considered to be the most capable to be elected Pope. I mean, the wisdom was Montini should be the Pope, but he wasn't a cardinal. They could have elected him. I mean, you know, they can elect a layman. Not a lay woman yet, but they could elect a layman. <laughs> a Jerry Anthony could be the next pope, you know. <laughs> but Montini wasn't a cardinal. He, by the way, was the first cardinal that John made when he was made pope. Uh, and when he went into the conclave, it wasn't uh, immediately clear, but pretty quickly on, it became clear to Cardinal Roncalli, something bad could happen to me here. <laughs> um, he wasn't, they wanted somebody different from Pius XII. That was pretty clear, too, who was aloof and autocratic uh, and intellectual, who was not accessible to the bishops, really, um, who had spent a lifetime in diplomacy. There was a pretty good consensus they wanted a pastoral pope to keep that chair warm. But you know, there were 11 ballots cast before John received the two-thirds plus one vote, which made him pope. And he's, he becomes the pope when he says that he accepts. He's got to say yes. And he did. He said, obediencia at pox. You know, if the church is asking him to do this, I'll do it. Um, and the next thing he said was, vocabor Ioannes. I shall be called John. Nobody expected that. They all expected him to be another pious. They had pious the ninth, pious the tenth, pious the eleventh, pious the twelfth. John. Since the 1300s, there hadn't been a Pope John because there was a Pope John the 23rd before this one 
who was an antipope, you know, was part of the, uh, the uh, division. It was a schismatic uh, period. Uh, and John wanted to restore that name to the papacy. And he said there are three reasons that he chose the name John. It was the name of his beloved father, Giovanni. It was the uh, patron saint of the church where he was baptized in Soto El Monte. And thirdly, he's the patron saint of the Pope's Cathedral, which is St. John Lateran. Did you all know that, that the St. Peter's Basilica is not the Pope's Cathedral? That's, it's a basilica. It's not a cathedral. The cathedral is where the chair of the bishop is. And the chair of the Bishop of Rome is not in St. Peter's. That's a monument to the papacy of Julian I. The, the, the chair of the Bishop of Rome is in the Cathedral of Rome, which is St. John Lateran. Gorgeous church, by the way. Magnificent mosaics on the floor, if you've never seen it. Beautiful. Those were the three reasons he chose the name. This is an amazing man. All through those years, from Bulgaria to Istanbul to Paris... The one who was in charge of the diplomats of the church was an old conservative cardinal named Cardinal Tardini in Rome. Cardinal Tardini was upset with Archbishop Roncalli on a number of occasions. Didn't think he was handling stuff quite delicately enough or thought that he should have done A instead of B. You know, he was not a major fan of Roncalli, but, you know, he was in charge of the diplomats, Tardini was, so he dealt with him. John XXIII asked Cardinal Tardini to be his Secretary of State. What a clever old guy he was. And that's, then Reagan did the same thing. He had George Bush, his number one opponent, he made him his vice president and con closest consul. Lincoln did something like that, too. Huh? Well, John did it, too. And he was wise. He did it because Tardini knew where all the skeletons were because he'd put half of them there. <laughs> he, knew, he knew how the church worked. John was never in the curia. He never overran the curia, but he never let the curia dominate him either. But Tardini knew all that stuff. Very smart move. Uh, sure it surprised Tardini more than anybody else. He knew the turf. John said there were going to be two main themes in his pontificate. Unity in the church and peace in the world. To just jump ahead a little bit here, I hope it doesn't confuse you at all, but uh, he wrote two encyclicals while he two encyclicals and called an ecumenical council. This is in less than five years. This is amazing. The first encyclical he wrote was called Mater et Magistra, the church as mother and teacher. But the second one, that he was racing against the cancer of his stomach that he wrote, that he desperately wanted to finish before he died, was his beautiful encyclical called Pacem in Terrace. Remember his two goals? Unity in the church peace on earth, pacem in terras, is peace in the world, uh, which is to this day a, a very uh, powerful encyclical. Uh, John wanted a coronation. I know some of you who are a little longer in the tooth might remember that the Pope used to wear a tiara 
a, a crown that had three levels to it. I don't know what the symbolism is. That somebody knows. Uh, yeah, I only have so many brain cells left. I don't want to waste them on stuff like that. You know? um, he he wanted a coronation. He loved that. You know, and that meant also, by the way, that he had to be carried in. You know, on the on the seda. You know, like this is a big man. He's a very big man. Oh, um, the, the coronation mass was five hours long. That's a long time for a 76-year-old bladder. You know that? <laughs> five hours. And also he did something that had never been done by any pope preceding him. He gave the homily at his um, installation mass or coronation. The third day he was pope, before the coronation, he's pope as soon as he said yes in the Sistine Chapel. The third day he was pope, he told Capovia, his friend and secretary from Venezia, he wanted to call a council. And Capovia told him respectfully, your holiness, you're crazy. <laughs> and you know what he told Capovia? It's very interesting and insightful on John, what kind of man he was. He told Capovia, he said, your ego's in the way, and therefore you're not free. You know, you're thinking in terms of like, what will people think if, quotes, we do this. Your ego's in the way, and therefore you're not free. And then he said, besides, he had done something all, he had done his whole life before he made big decisions. He used Ignatius of Loyola's discernment method. Ask any Jesuit. They'll be glad to tell you about it. It's how to discern the dark spirits and the white light spirits. Ask sisters uh, 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 from the spiritual direction perspective. Many spiritual directors are trained by the Ignatian method. It's a, it's a, it's a method that works. It's good decision-making skills, but prayerfully done. He said, I've prayed about this. We're going to do it. Um, he also, right from the beginning, as I mentioned last evening, if you were here, he said, nobody gets condemned at this council. First council ever that that was true about. Nobody gets condemned. It's going to be pastoral. Uh, on January the 25th, 1959, on the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, he went to the Basilica Paul outside the walls, Rome. And at a mass there, announcing to the priests of Rome, he had three initiatives he wanted to institute. Number one, he wanted to call a synod for the Diocese of Rome, which, by the way, was a disaster. Secondly, he announced uh, that a commission to revise canon law it had not been revised since 1917. By the way, it wasn't done until 1983, but John started that in 1959. Uh, it's a good thing it wasn't done till then because uh, Paul VI mandated that it be done to revise according to the theology of Vatican II. And then the third thing he says was, I intend to call an ecumenical council. And everybody was saying, what'd you say, you know? Why? How? Who is going to pay for this? 
I mean, there were all kinds of questions. But like, what? I mean, this doesn't sound like a guy who's keeping the chair warm, not making any innovations or any initiatives that can't be postponed. I'm going to call an ecumenical council and did. Extraordinary. You know, uh, and I apologize for any redundancy, but uh, Tardini, Secretary of State, Cardinal Tardini, um, the belief was this, whoever's in charge of the agenda controls the council. So Tardini took it, you know, asked by the Pope, organized the schema, schemata that are going to be prepared for the bishops to work with and assured all the professors of the universities in Rome, the theology professors, they would be the periti, or the experts. Um, boy, did they get a surprise. But uh, the idea was they are going to prepare these very conservative, definitive, Roman method of doing theology schemata. Uh, and John, fine, do what you want. It's okay, do what you want, do what you need to do. Uh, the Curia very tightly controlled all the preparations for the council. It took them three years to get it ready. It was opened on October 11th, 1962. But listen to this. Hans Kuhn, Swiss theologian. Some of you may have heard of Hans Kuhn. He's uh, still alive and well and writing. Very liberal theologian. Hans Kuhn published a book outlining his agenda for the council. What he thought ought to happen at the council. This is not a bishop. He's a theologian, Swiss theologian. Here are the things that King said the council should address. I'll give you a little preview here. All of them happened. Number one, to have a growing esteem for the use of Bible in worship. Development of the people's liturgy, meaning the vernacular. The universal priesthood of the faithful, primacy of baptism. Dialogue uh, with the church, of the church with other cultures, church in the modern world. The disentanglement of the church from politics. John Paul II worked really hard to make that happen, by the way. Drop the index of forbidden books. We're all big boys and girls and can decide what we're going to read and not read. And have ecumenical outreach. Every single thing that King said should happen in the council happened. Do you know what John the Twenty-Third did? What a wise old fellow he was. He took a cardinal, I'm not sure if he made him a cardinal or not, I don't think so, but he might have. But he wasn't part of the Curia, he'd been head of the Biblicum. This is a biblical scholar, a Jesuit, named Cardinal Bea, German Jesuit. Bea doesn't sound German, but he was. He named Cardinal Bea the head of the Christian Secretariat and put him in charge of the schemata on the liturgy. This was a liberal, scripture-based theologian, not a Roman theologian. And what was interesting was, look how crafty the Pope was by doing that. 
He didn't have to take on the Curie at all. He let Bayet do it. <laughs> and they couldn't really complain much about Bea as being a liberal because he was the confessor for Pius XII. He heard the Pope's confession. And by the way, uh, it was the practice of Pius XII to go to confession every morning. How crafty was that? Putting Bea in charge of that liturgy doctrine. That's the first one that the council actually promulgated. John denounced what he called prophets of gloom who wanted to condemn people. He denounced that and said, we're going to use the medicine of mercy. Um, Sunins of Belgium and Montini of Milano became hugely influential in the council. Uh, one sentence of redundancy here. At the end of the first session, they hadn't produced any documents. And everybody, including the Pope, had hoped it would end at the end of the first session. And John said the brothers need to look in each other's eyes, see what's in each other's hearts, get to know each other, leave them alone, they're doing fine. But at the end of that first session, Cardinal Montini, who became Paul VI, suggested an agenda for the rest of the council. He put together an agenda, and he said it's going to take at least three more sessions of the council to do this. And that's exactly what the council did. And the curia, uh, all those schemata were gone. The agenda of the curia was dumped, and Montini's agenda was adopted with the Pope's permission. And then John died, and Montini was elected Pope, so you can bet his agenda took place at the council. John was hands-off with the council. Paul VI was hands-on in the council. Um, you know, there's a beautiful uh, anecdote that took place when the council opened on October 11th. I think it was a Sunday night, a Sunday. On Sunday night, the piazza in front of the Apostolic Palace, in front of St. Peter's, if you've been there, it's huge. It has a big obelisk, obelisk in the middle of it. Do you know that? I remember time I was meeting a priest friend of mine who's a great scholar. And we were gonna, everybody meets at the obelisk in front of St. Peter's, you know. So I'm there, and I'm waiting for my friend, and I'm leaning against the obelisk, and I'm looking at a guide or something, you know. And, and I hear this booming voice coming from behind me. Have you no respect, man? He said, Moses saw that obelisk. It's <laughs> great. Anyway, this whole piazza is filled with half a million people, most of them young uh, marrieds and university students, lots of young people. This is at night of the opening of the council. And they're singing and they're praying and they're calling out to the Pope. Uh, and he comes to the window with his microphone and he says to them, quote, Dear children, dear children, I hear your voices. Then he spent a half an hour talking to them about his hopes for the council. Just talking to the folks from his balcony, half a million people, telling them what his hope was for them. You know, the joy of the Lord touched their hearts and their lives. And after half an hour of talking to the folks spontaneously, the Pope said to them, quote, Now go back home and give your little children a kiss. Tell them it's from Pope John. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, I just, I just, I just so glad to have been alive in an age when you could have this kind of affection for uh, for a pope. Um, 
talked, oh, by the way, you know what else was going on? October 11th, the council opened. October 15th, the Cuban Missile Crisis took place. Four days after the council opened. You know what? I didn't know until I did my research for this uh, reflection. John was hugely instrumental working with Kennedy and Khrushchev to resolve this mess and through their diplomatic channels. I don't mean he said a prayer for him. He was actively shuttling folks back and forth between uh, Washington and Moscow to avert this horrendous threat of annihilation of the world. It could have been a nuclear holocaust. And both Kennedy and Khrushchev ultimately acknowledged the really important part that uh, John played in the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Remember, there's also this huge allergy to communism. John didn't have that. He saw people as people. He said, I will answer whoever knocks on my door. And he got a royal uh, flack from the Curial Cardinals because he gave an hour and a half audience to Khrushchev's daughter and son-in-law after this crisis was averted. Uh, the the uh, diplomats said, do not, don't do it in the papal um, receiving room, you know, like where you re receive the diplomats and all that. Do it in private, you know, no pictures. Uh, don't do it, is what they said to him. And he said, I will do it. You know, I'm, I'm, this is out of respect for the fact that Khrushchev Listen to the Pope of Rome. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is all behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, this is an untrained diplomat that pulled off some pretty amazing stuff in his uh, in his career in his life. Um, skip a few things here. You know, one of the things that is, is, it wouldn't shock you or surprise you, but was so beautiful about John is that he never ever uh, rejoiced at someone's discomfiture. You know, some of the older cardinals who were his friends, Ottaviani, Ruffini, Siri from Genoa, these were very conservative cardinals who were pushing a conservative agenda at the council which was not adopted. At one point, Ottaviani just got, this is, this is the head of the Congregation of the Faith, just was so upset with what was going on at the council. He just didn't come back for two weeks. He just didn't deal with anybody. Uh, but John would reach out to them. He never, he never took, took pleasure in somebody else's discomfort. And as I said last night, in the end, most of those 16 documents were pretty darn close to unanimous, unanimously passed by the fathers of the council. Extraordinary. Um, what people didn't know was this, and it's... Uh, it, it kind of like confused the fathers of the council uh, when the council began. Uh, the council began October 11th. On September 23rd, John got the diagnosis that he had cancer of the stomach. He had been through a variety of tests, and the tests came back with a diagnosis of cancer of the stomach. It's three weeks before the council opened. Nobody knew that. Nobody knew except Capavia and couple of folks on the inside as physicians, of course. But it was it, now it makes sense. It made sense after that came out how sick he was. 
to the Cardinals as the council was opening because uh, John didn't go to much stuff. He gave an opening talk. He'd show up from time to time. Uh, <laughs> Capovia said that he watched on closed-circuit television, and but with the volume off. He'd turn it up when somebody was saying something he thought would be interesting. But John uh, said to them that uh, his contribution would be suffering. Didn't make any sense, you know, to people, but... Now it did then, you see. Um, and it was during that time also that he was rushing to finish Pachamenteras while the council was going on as well. Um, as I said last night too, he called the council a new Pentecost. Incredible. On June 3rd, 1963, John died. Um, he was 81 and a half years old. He'd been a priest for 58 years. He'd been a bishop for 38. And he'd been a pope less than five years. And there's a beautiful uh, anecdote that took place while he was on his deathbed. And a number of his brothers and sisters did make their way from uh, uh, Soto El Monte to, to be with him when he died. But the papal sacristan, I don't know if he's a monsignor or a bishop or whatever he was, but the papal sacristan was there to anoint the pope, to give him the sacrament of the, of the anointing. Uh, the rite was changed before I became a priest, but in the old days, when that sacrament was given, now it's given, you're anointed on the forehead and the palms of your hands. Uh, at that time, the sacrament, you were anointed on the five senses. And it, this papal sacristan was so shook up uh, anointing a dying pope that he screwed up the sequence that he was supposed to follow in the administration of the sacrament. And here's John laying on his deathbed, gently coaching this priest how to anoint him. I love that image. I love that image. I remember before I was ordained a priest, you're supposed to make a retreat before you're ordained a priest. Well, I went to a Trappist monastery for a day. <laughs> um, you know, spent the day in prayer. And I wanted to celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation, so I asked the brother Porter for a priest so I could go to confession. So he got me this, this little old Trappist priest, uh, sweet old man, and... Uh, he didn't know what I wanted. And I said to him, Father, I'd like to go to confession. And he said, oh, my. He said, he said, you know, I don't do this very often, and I don't remember the words of absolution. <laughs> and I said to him, I got you covered. I just learned them. <laughs> and we did it. It was like painting with numbers. He repeated after me, you know, gave me absolution. It's a great church, isn't it? So that's how John died. He died blessing those folks uh, who were trying to help him. <laughs>